We are going to be in the book of Jonah. Every time we're looking at a name of God, I always want us to ground it in a story of how we see that in action. So it's in the book of Jonah. Towards the last part of the Old Testament, if the Bible's still kind of new to you, after Amos, Obadiah, if you get to Micah, you went a little bit too far. Um, so the book of Jonah, famous story that I think even in our culture, most people still know, but we're going to take a look at it today. Um, so we're continuing with those names of God. I don't know about you. Have they not been powerful to learn these names of God, the things that they represent about who he is? It has even grounded and anchored me more in the character of God doing this on my own next week, especially I'm going to share of a way that it's really impacted me um, when we look at that name. Um, and today we're going to be looking at Jonah and one of my favorite names for God, somebody from Twitter says, I think every name you say is your favorite. This really is like top three for me. It really is. You're going to see why. And I, I have been dying this whole semester to get to this day um, to do the worship we did and to get to this. It's, the name is in Exodus 34, 14. Keep your finger in Jonah, okay? We're going to do some stuff on the screen first, but in Exodus 34, 14. Um, in the NIV, it says this, do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The New American Standard says, you shall not bow down to any other God, for the Lord, Jealous, his name, is a jealous God. Now, those translations don't show it very accurately, but this is actually the self-revelation of a name of God. And in Hebrew, that word jealous is the word kana. Can you say kana with me? Kana, that's the name, that's the word for, that's jealous there. In the Hebrew, it literally reads this way, Yahweh Kana, whose name is, God Kana is. So one of the names of God is Yahweh Kana. Can you say that with me? Yahweh Kana. I am jealous, to which I said the first time I encountered that as a new believer, really? Really? Because what it reminded me of, I mean, I was still a teen. It reminded me of those teen years of when you get a crush on a girl. Uh, I think a lot of you guys have experienced this. You get a crush on a girl. Maybe even you start going steady. I don't know if that's what people say anymore. We'd go steady. And once you do, you become so hypersensitive that if she even glances at another guy, jealousy just rages up within you, right? Do you remember those days? Um, long, long ago for me. That's what it reminded me of. And I'm like, what kind of God is this? That the core of his nature, part of the core of his nature is that he's jealous. I mean, do I really want to serve that kind of a God? That's, that's, it, it made me, this name when I first encountered it made me cringe, to be honest, this text. And here's what I would say, is that that word jealous is not at all a good translation of the Hebrew word kana. It's not a good translation. There's a much more better and accurate English word, and it is the word zealous. Um, and that is, why, um, that is why in Young's literal translation, he puts it this way, do not bow yourselves to another God, for Jehovah, whose name is Zealous, is a zealous God. And I'm sure you're probably thinking, yeah, how am I going to believe you, Garen, over my Bible translation, right? So I want you to give me a minute and let me make the case that this should be the word zealous, should be the English word here. Um, kana can be translated in several ways. It can be translated as jealous. It can be translated as zealous. And in a minute, I'm going to show you the main way they do it is jealous. But Moises Silva, who is the preeminent, most trusted Hebrew scholar on the meaning of Hebrew words, has says that the primary meaning of this word is zealous. That is the primary meaning of the word. 
Now, this won't be particularly meaningful to you, but if you take that kana and you put the Hebrew letter bet on the front of it, that's a proposition. If you put that on front of it, it makes the word mean jealous, okay? Kana with bet, bet kana means jealous. That's how it's translated every time. And William Van Gimmeren, uh, that's a good Dutch name, I think, in his Hebrew dictionary says this, this negative construction, this negative construction, it is never used in connection with God. Never. Never used. And that's why Van Gimmeren says, any association of self-centered pettiness, envy or jealousy, it is absent in the context of the manifestation of the kana of God. The translation jealous, therefore, is inadequate. Inadequate. Moises Silva, again, top expert in Hebrew, agrees. He says, when referring to God, the traditional English rendering jealous can be misleading. And I think he speaks too softly. Can be misleading? It is misleading, in my opinion. Another Hebrew scholar wrote, in no single passage in the whole Old Testament is God described as envious. Even in those texts where the adjective kana is used, it is more appropriate to understand it as zealous. He goes on to say, when God is the subject of the verb kana, the meaning is to be zealous. It's to be zealous. So when it is used of God, here's what kana means. Kana means, and this is its really root meaning anyways, to have a strong desire, deep devotion for something to be enthusiastically, exclusively devoted to, to be passionately devoted to. Kana refers to an ardent zeal, a passionate, all-consuming zeal. Those meanings are what lay at this word, kana, okay? That's what it's talking about. I want to show you on the screen a few other places that kana agrees in the Old Testament. I could show you a lot where your English Bible translates it as zealous, one is in Numbers 25.11, where God says of a man named Phineas, it says this, he was, this is the NIV, he was as zealous, kana, for my honor among them as I am. If you were to look at Psalm 69.9, I want to show you the different ways some English translate kana in that psalm, very famous verse. The NIV says, zeal, kana, for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. The New Living Translation, passion for your house has consumed me. The Contemporary English, my love for your house burns in me like a fire. The Good News Translation, my devotion to your temple burns in me like a fire. Do you see how they're using kana in those texts, in that context? Do you remember when we did Yahweh Rohi, the Lord is my shepherd? The story we went to was when Elijah was on the run from Jezebel. And he was wrecked, right? And how God ministered to him emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every area of his life shepherded him. And if you remember in that story, that was like two months ago. That was actually almost three months ago. Uh, I'm losing track. That's just an age thing, okay? Um, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, twice in, in verses 10 and 14, if you remember, here's what Elijah said in his encounter with God. I have been very zealous, kana. For the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And I could show you so many more examples from the Old Testament of how Cana is frequently, by our English Bibles, translated as zealous. And I think rightfully so. Except where it matters most, in my opinion. You know, the, the Jewish people, their Bible was Hebrew. That was their language. By the time of Jesus the, the Greeks had taken over that whole part of the Mediterranean world. The Romans had come in, but Greek was the language of everybody, okay? 
And so the Jewish scholars, a group of them, translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so the Greek-speaking peoples could have the Old Testament. Jesus would have used Hebrew, but he also would have read the Septuagint, this Greek New Testament. Paul used the Septuagint. All quotations in the New Testament of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. And when they were translating this word, kana, the Greek word that they chose is the Greek word zelos. Would you say zelos with me? Zelos. And you can tell we get our English word zeal from this word. Um, again, the primary meaning of this word, according to Lo and Nida, the premier linguist when it comes to the meaning of Greek words, is they say it means to be zealous. That's the root meaning of zelos. So just like Hebrew kana, it refers to a passionate committal to a person, a thing or a cause. It means to have great enthusiasm or fervor for. It's to set one's heart on, to be wholly devoted to, to be deeply devoted to with great zeal, to be deeply committed to. That's why Paul in Romans 12, 11, he writes this, never be lacking in zeal, in zealos, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In Romans 10, 2, Paul writes to the Jewish people this way. He says, I can testify about them that they are zealous, zealous for God. Jesus in Luke 6 has a list of his 12 followers. And in verse 15 of Luke 6, it says that one of his followers, not Simon Peter, but one of his followers was called, was Simon who was called the what? The zealot, zealates, okay? He was a zealot. He was in a political party of people who were passionate for the liberation of Israel from Rome, so much so that they would assassinate Romans um, and they would kill any Jew who was working with them. That's how passionate they were. So that's that use of that word there. So all that's to say that this amazing name of God, this, this name of God that I love so much, is really best translated, I am zealous or I am passionate. That is the meaning of this name. Do you see why I love this name so much? I think you're going to see it even more. Because God's passionate zeal is at the core of who He is. It's part of His character. In the Middle Ages, theologians started talking about what they called the impassibility of God. That's a really big phrase. I don't even know why they use that word. But the idea that God is emotionless, that He's above emotion. Um, And I want you to tell you, the God of the Bible, that's no further from the truth. That's the God of the deist who simply creates, sets everything spinning, and then he just sits up there not really caring what happens, okay? The God of the Bible is a God of zeal and passion. And what about Jesus? I always try to tie in Jesus because Jesus is the incarnation of God, right? He's God in human flesh. He's the embodiment of God. And how do we see these names played out in his life? And do we? We most definitely do. Um, In John chapter 2 is the story of Jesus coming into the temple, and he finds it this loud market, right? going on, overturns tables. I think you know the story. And in John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, here's what it says. Jesus says, stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, quoting Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Isn't that cool? Jesus was a man full of zeal. I wish I could show you One of the most important words in the Greek language that referred to Jesus' inner world and frequently when he would encounter people in need with compassion, there's this very deep deep Greek word of how his passion was stirred up deeply for people and it would always lead in him, bringing healing or speaking truth. So Jesus was full of zeal. So quick question, what is God zealous for? Um, Three things. 
He is zealous for his name. He's zealous for you and for me. And he's zealous for your well-being. Um, Ezekiel 39.2 says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will be zealous, Kana, for my holy name. Because if you remember, a name represents somebody's character. And he wants to be known as he truly is. That's why, that's why Jesus says that the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in what? Truth. He wants to be known as he truly is, just like I do. I want to be known as I truly am. If you hear a word on the street of something being said about you that you feel like it's not true, you try to correct it, right? So God is zealous for his name. He's also zealous for you and for I. Um, I'm not going to show you. I, I'm going to skip through these in a minute. But in Zechariah, in two places, chapter 1, verse 14 and 8, verse 2, talking about his people. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love, my kana for my people is passionate and strong kana. I am consumed with passion, kana for them. Three times that word, kana. He is consumed with passion for his people. Um, let me skip. I want to show you a verse. That's why I'm going to skip through all that explanation so you can get out on time for your lunch. That's why in Jeremiah, the Lord appeared saying, I love you with an ever, I've loved you with an everlasting love. So he's passionate for you. And he's also passionate for your well-being, like any good parent. Any good parent, right? Psalm 35, 27, the Lord delights in the well-being of his servants. That's what a good parent does. That's why Jesus says, I've come to give life, I've come to give it in the fullest. I want you to have full life, I want you to flourish. So this is important. He not only loves you and cares about you, but he wants you to live to the fullest. And that is why in the Old Testament, this name, kana, or the verb kana, frequently appears in the context of idolatry, frequently. I preached on idolatry a few years ago. Spiritual idolatry is when I love something more than God. That's what has my heart. That's what has my passion. That's what has my pursuit. And God in Cana is pointing us away from that and pointing us back to himself because what God knows is, is he created, we are created by him and we're created for him. And the fuel, the fuel that our hearts run on is him and our lives will only be fully satisfied, working well when we're connected to him, okay? Um, what would happen if I took my truck out today as it runs low on fuel and I were to put, I thought, I could, Coca-Cola is a lot cheaper than gasoline, right? And I could put some Coca-Cola. How, how well do you think that's going to work? Terrible, right? Or sweet tea or water or Mountain Dew. Wouldn't that be cool? Having your truck run on Mountain Dew. Um, it's not designed to run on that. It will not work well, and in fact, it will become broken. And so God cares about our well-being, and that's why he is constantly pointing us back to himself to have a kana zeal for him because he knows that our life will only be truly whole in him. You know, when the guys, the Ford manufacturer for the F-150 wrote the instruction manual, and if I were to pull it out on, on page, you know, 35 or whatever, it says, when you fill it up, put gasoline in it, not Mountain Dew, Garen, okay? That's not being arrogant, is it? It's saying, this is how we've designed. So when God says, love me with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and mind, that's not being arrogant. He's pointing us to the only person who can make us whole. Okay, so Kana's frequently used in that context. So he cares, he's zealous for his name, he's zealous for you and for me, but he's also zealous for our well-being. So to summarize, God is Yahweh Kana, he is a zealous God. He would say, I'm zealous for you, I'm passionate for you. Is that not good news? Is that God new news? So here's my key truth for you this morning. 
that this zealous, passionate God, Yahweh Kana, he will go to any length in order to win you over to himself and to keep you close to him. He will go to any length to win you over to himself because of his Kana love for you. And that's where Jonah comes in. So I hope you kept your finger there. Let me set it up before we read it. Jonah was a prophet of northern Israel. In fact, he grew up only a few miles from a village that would later be called Nazareth. Um, And at that time, there was this northern empire called Assyria that was the dominant power, the dominant empire of that day, capital city of Nineveh, that was spreading out and that was attacking everybody around them, including northern Israel. That's the reality they were growing up with. And I want you to know, when they invaded a land, they were ruthless. People back then were brutal. They were brutal to brutal people. This is a picture um, of one of the stone carvings that they had on a wall in the city of Nineveh showing just how brutal they were people. I don't know, can you tell what those are with the yellow circles? Okay, they were brutal. Everybody around Assyria hated them, despised them because they were conquered how they were treated. And the people of Israel wanted nothing more than God to rain down fire and to destroy that empire and that city. And so the book of Jonah Chapter 1, verse 1, it begins with God's call to a man to go preach to the people of Nineveh. So, starting in chapter 1, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and he went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Good luck with that, right? He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. I'm sure you've seen this. That's what that looks like on a map. He was going in the exact opposite direction, way further to get away from the thing God asked him to do. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help. They threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and you pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. A really important verse in Jonah. I think as I talk about it, it'll make, you'll see that. Verse 7, then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What's your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the I am. It says Lord in all capitals, but I worship the I am, the God of heaven, the God of heaven who made the seas and the land, the creator of everything, not these small gods like God of that mountain and God of this nation and God of that. This is the creator God who I worship. We just sang about him. You are the most high God, Jehovah. Verse 10, the sailors, they were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the I am. (laughs) Oh, why did you do it, right? I love that. Like, what were you thinking, the great I am? And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said. It will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was violent, too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the I am, to Jonah's God, first time in their life. 
First time in their life. They cry out to the I am. Oh, oh, I am, they pleaded. Don't make us die for this man's sin. Don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, I am, you who sent, have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. And then the sailors picked up Jonah. They threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the I am's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice, and they vowed to serve him. Isn't that awesome? Chapter 2, then Jonah prayed to the, oh, verse uh, 17. Now, the, yeah, I missed the most important part. Like, how can you read Jonah and leave out 17? The Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. I'm not going to read the prayer. You can read that later. Skip down to verse 10 of chapter 2. Then the Lord ordered the fish to, be, to spit Jonah out or spew him onto the beach. I love that spew. That's why we have kids up here. They're great. Little theologians, right? Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I've given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and he went to Nineveh, a city so large it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh, they believed God's message. And from the, great, the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, he dressed himself in burlap, sat on a heap of ashes. And then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, not even your cats and dogs, okay, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. And when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction he had threatened because he's Yahweh Kana. Verse 4, chapter 4. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, you great I am? That's why I ran away to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Great guy, right? Need him, want him to be your... <laughs> In. Verse 4, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Really? Are you kidding me, Jonah? Verse 5, then Jonah went out to the east side of the city. He made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Just hoping the fire would come down, right? Front row seats. Verse 6, and the Lord arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shadowing him from, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm, and the next morning at dawn, the worm ate the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then Jonah, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry that that plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh, 
more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for this great city? Shouldn't I have compassion on this great city? Shouldn't I have mercy on this great city? Should I not kana this city? You know, the book of Nona is not, of Jonah, Nona. It's not really a book about Jonah. It's a book about God. It's about Yahweh Kana and his passionate pursuit of us. That's what the book of Jonah is about. And this is the story of God's pursuit of people who are far from him, far from him, both individuals and groups. And I want you to know God will do whatever it takes, short of sin, okay, short of sin. He'll do whatever it takes to bring lost people back to himself. This story speaks of three different groups, individuals that he is pursuing out of his kana love. Two, the first two I'm going to get to are groups who are both lost, who do not know him, and he's longing for them to have a relationship with him. The third is an individual, one of his children, a prodigal prophet, um, one of his kids who's gone rogue. Three groups or individuals he's pursuing. I think the obvious one in the story is Nineveh, Right? That nation and that city, those people, those people who least deserve God's love and his mercy, would you not agree? Who least deserved it? If there was anybody in this story who's unforgivable, who's disposable, who's beyond the reach of God, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, it's the Ninevites. They're the ones. And yet, rather than just wipe them out, God pursues them through a very reluctant prophet who doesn't want to join him in that mission. And in chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, they respond, and when they do, God relents. And we saw it ticked him off, didn't it? Ticked Jonah off. Again, chapter 4, verse 2, the most important text. I want to read this again, if you don't mind. Because he knew the kana heart of God. Did not I say before I left home, you would do this, Yahweh kana That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and a compassionate God. You're slow to get angry. You are filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. He wanted them wiped off the face of the earth, but God did not. But God did not. Isn't that cool? And amen to that. Amen to that, because I am Nineveh. I've been there. Okay, I want to say, I just want to step aside and say a quick thing, if you don't mind. It is easy, it is common, and it's easy, I understand, to look at the God of the Old Testament and be like, he's just this mean bully, right, who's unrelenting in judgment and just wiping people out. It's kind of easy to read the Old Testament that way, but that's not a deep reading of it. Um, I want to come back next year, and I'm going to do a two-sermon series on why that's a wrong reading of the Old Testament. But we need to trust Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God who knew God better, way better than we do, the God of the Old Testament. And the way he saw God wasn't as the God wanting to wipe people out, but was the God who wanted to pursue and save people, okay? So I just want to, that's important. Okay, so Nineveh, he's pursuing Nineveh. Secondly, he's pursuing Jonah. Not quite as obvious, but I mean, it's pretty easy to see that this story is also about the pursuit of his prodigal prophet, Jonah. And I want you to know, I want to do a whole sermon series on Jonah. I love this book. It is so rich. I'm just scratching the surface today. But as you read Jonah, here's what I want you to know. It becomes increasingly clear as you read this book. The antagonist of the book of Jonah is not Nineveh. The antagonist is Jonah. It's actually Jonah. 
And at every point of the story, he fails. Every point. And no one in this story more consistently deserves God's anger than Jonah. And does not deserve his mercy. But yet, God never stops pursuing Jonah. Because he wants to win his heart. And then finally, this is the least noticeable. But it's not any less important. God was in pursuit of those pagan sailors. You know the reputation of sailors, right? We had an old Navy sailor in first service. He's talked to me. He said, the reputation is true, okay? They're ragtag, rough people, right? And these are men who worship all their ancestral gods, this mix of men on this boat. And here's what's amazing to me is God uses Jonah's rebellion, Jonah's rebellion to actually reach and pursue those sailors, Um, You know, in verse 9, when they first say, like, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? And he says, I worship the I am. They became fearful. They end up praying to the I am for the first time. And then when the waves stop and it becomes totally still, they're just in total awe. And so they offer a sacrifice to him and they vow to serve him. So he wins the hearts of those sailors. He was actually pursuing them in this story. Isn't that cool? Nineveh, Jonah, and the sailors. I love Jonah because this story to me reveals the heart of Yahweh Kana, that he is a God who is for us. And though he has every right, though he has every right to give up on rebels like us, like me, and move on, he doesn't. He doesn't. Jonah is the story of God's prodigal, his extravagant, his endless, his relentless love. That's what this book is a story of. And not just his relentless love, but his relentless pursuit. Yahweh Kanaz, a God who pursues, who pursues fugitives. How many of you have seen the movie The Fugitive? Great movie. Not very many, but a few. Um, in that, the U.S. Marshal, I didn't know his name until this week, Samuel Garrard. I don't even know that he's named in the movie. I'm not sure. Um, this marshal is relentlessly nonstop pursuing a fugitive. Nothing's going to keep him from getting his man. And God is exactly the same way. He's in pursuit of his fugitives. And I want you to know this morning, I don't know where you are, but you, you cannot get too far from the reach of God. You cannot get too far from his reach. God moved by his zeal, his kana, pursued and won Nineveh and the sailors. Jonah, we don't know. The book ends in the open-ended. We do not know how Jonah responded to him. So we're not sure how that one went. But I just want you to know this morning that God will spare no expense. He will go to any length to win your heart and to bring you back to himself. And he will, because he's a good parent. I think if you're a dad, you get this. He will with no regret. He will do whatever he can in order to redirect us from the idols and the things that do not lead to our flourishing, to redirect us back to himself where our lives are whole and our flourishing and our well-being is top-notch. Does that make sense? He'll do anything to thwart our pursuit of other things because they keep us from the best life with him. As C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, love this quote. Can you not love anything, C.S. Lewis says? Uh, You asked for a loving God, you got him. The consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work, 
provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. That word inexorable means just it's, it's unstoppable. It keeps pursuing, keeps pursuing, keeps pursuing. So I want you to know in order to win you back to himself, he will pursue you as long as it takes and no matter the cost. That's the kind of God he is. As long as it takes and no matter the cost, especially to himself. No one pays a greater cost to win me back than he does. That's why John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his what? His one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. He sent his son into the world not to condemn it, He's a Kanah God, but so that the world through him might be saved. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning what? Sacrifice, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ, what? He died for us. I want you to know, he will pursue you at any cost, especially to himself. Jesus came, entered our broken world, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10.45, to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave everything in his pursuit of me and his pursuit of you. So 12th, I want you to know, God is always there. He's always there. He's always waiting for you. He's always in pursuit. And my question is, how will you respond to him? So I just want to take a minute. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute? Because I want you to have some time with God right now. Yahweh Kana, this is between you and him. First, I want to speak to, there are some people here who've been on a journey towards Jesus, who've been seeking God, don't know him yet in that way, that relationship, haven't known him as their savior, who are here today. And by the way, I want to say something. If you're here today, it's not an accident because God is pursuing you. That's why you're here today, all right? But anyways, if that's you, maybe this is the day you fully turn to him. So I'm, if you don't know him yet, are you ready to turn from your sin to turn to him in order to receive forgiveness from your sin and relationship? And if that's you, like grab me after the service. Now I want to speak to those of us who follow Jesus. We have that relationship with him. And here's what I want to know. Where are you right now with God? Where are you with God right now? Where are you in particular with your zeal for Him? Your zeal for Him. J.C. Ryle once said, a zealous, a zealous Savior ought to have zealous disciples. So if you did a zeal check this morning, where would you be on a scale of zero to 10? If zero is, it, I don't have it, it's gone. And 10 is, man, it's full on my zeal for God. I'm curious, before the Lord right now, where would you fall on a zeal check? Zero to 10. Talk to him about that. And I'm curious, where is your heart in relation to him? By this, I'm talking about like your passion, love for him, okay? Would you say that you're passionately pursuing him and you're growing in your love for him? Or would you say, you know what? My heart's grown lukewarm, maybe even cold and callous towards him. 
So let's do a passion check this morning. Again, on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being the lowest, 10 the highest. Where is your love for him right now? Where's your love for him? Running cold. Words of Revelation 2.4, have you lost your first love for him? Or would you say, right now my love for him is running hot? And perhaps there's somebody here this morning as a believer, and if you were honest, you would say, I am Jonah today. I'm Jonah. I am literally running from him. And I know it, and he knows it, and I need to come back. So for those of us who've lost our zeal for God, our love for him is cold. We're moving away from him rather than toward him. I just want to remind you of the kana love of God for you. His pursuit of you. And his longing for you to pursue him. You can look up. We're going to worship here in a second. Um, this song to me is about Yahweh, kana and his love. Corey Asbury says, there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, kana love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away over the, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, kana love of God. Are you not thankful for that love? So just where are you with him? We're going to end with worshiping that song. And as we do that, we thought as we talk, this could be a good time. See if there's a response, if there's anybody wanting to respond. Not everybody wants to come down front, but you may be at a place like, man, my heart's cold. Like the zeal is fading away. And I need to talk with God about that. And if it would help you to come up and do that, we want to invite you to do that. And I have up here some threads of hope. These come from the Philippines. Um, a ministry the Coltrane's have worked with that women make these to earn money so they can stay out of sexual trafficking, not giving their daughters. It's a great ministry into sexual trafficking. And if, if you do come up and you want a reminder like, I need, I need to burn hot for him, then take this and, and put it on as a reminder, okay? So do that. So would you stand with me? Again, if you feel led, feel free to come up if you're comfortable doing that. But let's, uh, let's worship the Lord. Before I spoke a word. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, so, so kind to me, and oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, holy chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves a ninety-nine, and I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. 
there's no shadow. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow. God was really working in your heart and like, I need to have some business with God, but didn't want to come up here. That's fine. Don't let this day go and get so busy that you just put it off again. The heart gets a little more calloused, okay? Um, first service, after the service was over, we had a number of people who just came up and grabbed one of these because um, God was working. So feel free as people are coming out to grab one of these to wear it just as a reminder to be pursuing Him. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this reality that you are Yahweh Kana. You are the God who is zealous for us, who is passionate for us, and that you pursue us. But we do not always give you that in return and fail more often than not. So forgive us of that. Lord, help just to draw us to yourself. May we have a zeal and a passion for you and for knowing you that, that just gets closer to what yours is for us. And Lord, because there's a world who needs to see people who love you and who are on fire for you. Desperately, people need to see that. So pray this in the name of Jesus, our zealous God. Amen. Yep, 12th, I am sending you to a world that desperately, desperately needs to see people who are passionately love with God. So 12th, you are sent to be that kind of people.